Good morning. So this morning we're in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. And so that's right between Proverbs and Song of Solomon, if you want to go there in your Bibles. Uh, so today's Father's Day. Wait, let me, I have a couple quick announcements. So I think we probably have enough of the gifts. So if you're, uh, as you walk out, even if you're not yet a father, if you have a potential of being a father, you're male, you can have a gift. Thank you. And then uh, also, last week we had uh, F and Sompet from Cambodia share, and they have a, a table display outside if you want to stop by and just see a little bit more about the ministry they do among the poor in Cambodia. Okay, so it's Father's Day, so I thought I'd begin with a little football, all right? So even though the NBA Game 7 championships tonight, how many even knew that? Yeah, this isn't, a, the, this isn't as a sports-excited church as I would like to be the pastor of, but what, what, what can I do? So a little football. Who, go Jesus. <laughs> Thanks. So who remembers the big story of the 2007 NFL season? Anyone? Uh, Dina? Do you know? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's funny. Bill might know. Losing, all right. If Mark Easter, you know Mark Easter, he's, he's recovering from surgery, I believe. If he was here, he would know because he just knows this stuff. So uh, in 2007, the New England, New England, the New England Patriots were undefeated until they got to the Super Bowl, if you remember, which they, lo- they were 16-0. And they lost to the New York Giants in the Super Bowl. But in the midst of that uh, potentially record-breaking season, the Patriots quarterback, you may have heard of him, Tom Brady, who had already won three Super Bowls, was interviewed by 60 Minutes. So this is a a high point in his life, going for this record. And at the time, he was having this MVP season on the football field and, and, and other areas of his life. Even I have to admit, if you know Tom Brady, he's a, he's a handsome man. He just, sorry, he is. And he'd just come out of a relationship with one beautiful actress and was going into a relationship with a supermodel. It's tough to be Tom. He was making millions of dollars in football and endorsements. I think it's fair to say men wanted to be him and women wanted to be with him. And during the 60 Minutes interview, Tom Brady said something that really astonished a lot of people. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? 27, and what else is there for me? The interviewer asked Brady, so, so what's the answer? And he responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Brady was struggling with the same question uh, I think most of us have. What's this life all about? What's my purpose? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Sort of how we put it. And most people like Brady don't have the answer to that question. They only wish they knew. 
And that's where the book of Ecclesiastes comes in. Because it gives us insight into the life of a man who's seeking meaning and purpose in his own life. And it's my prayer that as we engage with this book, we come away not not only knowing the meaning of life, what the meaning of life is, but we know how to apply that meaning, that purpose in our own lives. How to live a meaningful life. And to do that, we need to begin, if we're going to look at Ecclesiastes, we need to understand it. Understanding Ecclesiastes. This is, isn't the easiest book to figure out. If you've, uh, so we're in the process, if you're visiting, we're sort of going through the Bible, uh, and each week uh, we have a, a section we read, and then I preach from that section. And so if you read Ecclesiastes this week, maybe you're thinking, this is, I mean, I was talking to Christina about it. You know, well, I didn't, there was some of it that was just difficult to understand. Couldn't figure it out. In places, it's difficult to know what the author means. We might sometimes uh, be scratching our heads. As, what? I, that doesn't even make sense to me. For example, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19, we read, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast, beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. All is vanity. Well, that doesn't just that doesn't seem right. It doesn't fit with the other things we know in Scripture. Children of men, people, and animals are the same. We both die. There's no difference. No advantage being a human being. That doesn't fit with what we read in Genesis, does it? That God made uh, man and He made woman. He made him special. He breathed life into them and He made them in His own image and He gave them dominion over the animal kingdom. So how do we understand verses like this in Ecclesiastes? Well, we need to begin uh, by looking at three things about this book. First, we have to understand its overall purpose. What's the point? Why is it written? What's it doing here? Knowing a book's purpose really helps us to understand how we interpret that book, how we apply that book in our life. For example, the purpose of, of Paul's letters in the New Testament, the epistles uh, written to the churches, are to give instructions for the churches in how to live the Christian life, how to follow Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the commands found in Paul's letters are to obey them. The purpose of the promises in Paul's letters are to claim them, to trust in them. We talked about this uh, last week when we looked at the book of Proverbs, if you remember. It was a little different. Remember, we said the purpose of Proverbs was to give guidelines or or wisdom for living, not guarantees for life. So we can't claim the verses of Proverbs in the same way we claim the promises in Paul's letters. Different books, different purposes, different interpreting, different application. Okay? So what's the purpose of Ecclesiastes? The main purpose is to give its readers, both then and now, insight or wisdom. It's also a book, a wisdom book, specifically into the meaning of life. What's your purpose? What are you here for? Ecclesiastes is a reflection of one man's attempt, one man's attempt, both positively and negatively, to find meaning in life. It's an exploration of one man's life, not a prescription on how we're to live. Does that make sense? Now, there's a lot of wisdom in uh, this book. 
we'll talk about this, but many think it's, it's really talking about the life of Solomon, the, the wisest man that ever lived. There's a lot of wisdom to be found in this book. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. We've heard this. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. The birds did a song, right? You know it? I'm not going to sing it. Every day you turned, there is a seat. You know, it's not the Beatles, by the way. It's the birds that sing that. Uh, Then in chapter 4, verse 9, maybe you've heard this. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Right? Just makes sense. Good stuff. There are many things that you read and you say, that makes sense. That's true. That's wise. But then there are also verses that just don't quite seem right. We can't just pick a verse and read it and say, ah, that's true in every sense of the, wo- the word. We already saw that in, in 319, in chapter 3, verse 19, that implies humans and animals are just the same. What we need to see is that uh, this, this person, this, uh, he's the preacher, we'll, we'll, we'll find out who he is, is speaking not absolute truth, but he's speaking from his personal experience what he observes as he's seeking meaning in life. And some of the things he observes aren't quite right. Here's another example. Ecclesiastes 7.13, he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he, God, has made crooked? This seems to say that God uh, uh, some way is in some ways perverse, makes things crooked or wrong. But because much of Ecclesiastes is a description of one man's experience, not a list of absolute truths, we have to take great care in interpreting and implying uh, verses like, like these that we've seen. So first, we need to understand the purpose to give us insight into the meaning of life, often from a, a negative perspective, often finding things that aren't quite right. And second, we need to understand that uh, this book, it, it has two distinct voices, Two distinct voices. What do I mean by that? On the pages of Ecclesiastics, you're going to hear two different sort of people, different perspectives. First, there's the voice of the preacher, okay? Ecclesiastics 1.1, and in some translations, it's the teacher. It's really one who gathers a group to teach. So a preacher, a teacher. So Ecclesiastics 1.1, the preacher is identified. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And then in verse 112, we hear the preacher's voice for the first time. So the, the introducer, we'll talk about him in a minute, is someone different. And then verse 12 is the preacher. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So he's telling us who he is. And most people believe, as I said, this preacher is Solomon. Could be someone else, could be a later king, but probably Solomon. And Ecclesiastes contains his reflections on the meaning of life, the pursuit of uh, purpose, pursuit of meaning. And it's probably his reflection, Solomon's reflections, near the end of his life. So remember, we, we sort of last week we talked about uh, what was going on at the beginning of Solomon's life when he asked God for, for wisdom and he wrote all these Proverbs. Now we're at the end of Solomon's life. And remember, we've talked about Solomon as well. As uh, we let's go back to our Bible. I've done this several times. When we walk through the Bible, if you're going to remember, so the first three kings of the United Kingdom of Israel were who? First was Saul, second was David, and third was Solomon. And after that, the kingdom's going to divide. And so remember, we said uh, Saul 
had no heart for God. David had a full heart for God. And Solomon sort of was half-hearted about God. And so we saw, so you sort of get this duality in Solomon. And we'll see, that's what we see on the pages of Ecclesiastes. We hear his voice from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 7. But there's another voice, not as prolific. Most of the, uh, the book is the preacher, but just as important. That's the voice of the narrator, the narrator. Maybe the author as well. Many believe that the narrator is the one who actually wrote the book based on the reflections of Solomon. Whether he got those orally or they were written down or whatever. The voice of the narrator is heard mainly in two places. In the beginning and the end of the book. Okay? In Ecclesiastes 1.1, he introduces what he's going to talk about. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So that's the narrator saying, this is what I'm going to tell you about. Then from verses 2 to 11, chapter 1, the narrator gives us an opening summary of the preacher's message. It's a, it's a summary of, of what you find in the, in the next 12 chapters. And then at the end of the book, chapter 12, verses 8 through 14, the narrator speaks again. He gives uh, some conclusions. He gives his own viewpoint on all of the, this 12 chapters worth of stuff that the, the preacher has sort of laid out. And it's critical that we see these are two different voices because they have two different perspectives. And we're going to get to that. In many ways, the narrator is using the reflections of the preacher to help illustrate what the meaning of life is not. Is not. So the key to understanding Ecclesiastes is found in the beginning and the end. The narrator's summary of the preacher's message in the beginning and his conclusions about the preacher's message in the end. And we'll get to those shortly. That's where we're going to spend most of our time, in the beginning and the end. But first, there's one more thing we need to understand about Ecclesiastes. It's, it's, uh, it's key concepts, and there's two. Two key concepts found in these chapters. There's other concepts, of course, but these are, are found throughout, and, and sometimes we don't quite understand what they're saying. So the first concept is, is vanity. Vanity. You've heard that in terms of uh, Ecclesiastics. 35 times, 12 chapters, we read this word vanity. Now when we hear vanity, we often think of someone taking pride in themselves, uh, especially their own beauty. As Car- I-, I got another song. As Carly Simon sang, you're so vain. Go ahead, Bill. Lead us. You probably think this song is about you. Yeah, right. It's probably not about me, though. Okay. But vanity in Ecclesiastes uh, refers not to thinking you're beautiful or awesome. It refers to something being futile, something being meaningless or pointless. The Hebrew word for vanity comes from the idea of of vapor. It's the Hebrew word hevel, vapor, like a a smoke. It's something that's here for a moment and then it's gone. It has no substance. You can't grab hold of it. In Ecclesiastes 1-2, the narrator really summarizes the preacher's message like this. Vanity of vanities, hevel of hevel, vapor of vapor, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all smoke. Smoke and mirrors, if, if you will. Everything the preacher sees and experiences, he says, is a vapor. It's meaningless. There's nothing to it. 
So, so, so get this concept of vanity, of, of vapor, of nothingness, of meaninglessness. And, and there's another concept we need to understand. Uh, Chad mentioned it as we were singing this morning. This the concept of under the sun. Under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, occurs 29 times in these 12 chapters. Now you might think, and, and, and you'd be correct, that under the sun means anything on earth. You got the sun, you got the earth. So under the sun, we're under the sun Anything on the earth, anything in the physical world. But it means more than that. It means, get this, only what is in the physical world. Not just what's in the physical, but only what's in the physical world. Do you see the difference? What's under the sun doesn't include the spiritual world. It doesn't include heaven and hell. It doesn't really include God. So life under the sun is the concept of of everything this world has to offer. But it doesn't include everything God has to offer. Life under the sun, in many ways, is life without God. That's why you often see these two concepts that we've talked about, vanity and under the sun, uh, uh, juxtaposed together. Chapter 7, verse 4 simply states, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Life without God, life that involves uh, just this physical world is pointless. It's a vapor. So as we read Ecclesiastics, we need to understand that the preacher's reflections are from this under-the-sun perspective. There is thoughts, what he sees in this world without reference to God or to heaven or to hell or to spiritual things. That's why he sees no difference between animals and humans. Because in the physical world, they both end up in the same place, in the dust, dead. He's going to say that he says the same thing about the rich and the poor. He says the same thing about the righteous and the unrighteous. They all die. And speaking of humans and animals, he, verse 19, and then you come to verse 20, it says, all go to one place, all are but dust, and to dust all return. It's all just the physical, natural world he's talking about. And even when the preacher doesn't say it, he's speaking in sort of this under the sun, without God perspective. And you know what? That's what makes this, that's why I decided to preach from this book. That's what makes this book so relevant for us today from two perspectives. First, because we live in a culture, we live in a culture, uh, we call it postmodern now, don't we? We live in a culture that denies God's involvement and his in- existence. Our culture lives under the sun. And therefore, things of this physical world, things that are explored in this book, we'll see. Things like money and sex and power and knowledge and prestige. That's where the world tries to find its meaning. So first, this book book is very relevant to our culture. But second, brothers and sisters, this book is very relevant to our lives. The preacher, in many ways, is very similar to us, even in the church. He believes in God. I mean, God's scattered throughout the book. He talks about God. He even says some true things about God, some very profound things even. But he, like many in the church, is living under the sun, ultimately. Living without engaging with God. Trying to find meaning in the things of this world. The message of this book is relevant to us as well. So let's open our ears and go to uh, hear Ecclesiastes, hearing Ecclesiastes. 
In the narrator's opening summary, he says that the preacher observes uh, some problems. There are two main problems for those living under the sun, living without reference to God, to, to, to spiritual things. First problem, everything under the sun is permanent. Everything under the sun is permanent, says the preacher. Ecclesiastes 1.3, and this is the narrator's summary of what We don't have time to read the 12 chapters, so we're going to go with the narrator's summary. He says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All Streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the sea flows. There they flow again. He says, why bother to toil, to work? Nothing changes. Generations come, generations go. But the earth remains forever. It's the same. He says, everything, the sun, the wind, the the water just goes in circles. Then in uh, verse 9, he says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Maybe you've heard that before. There's nothing new under the sun. And that might seem a little bit strange. You're going, wait, there's lots of new stuff under the sun. Because we live in a time of great change, don't we? Lots of new inventions just in the last hundred years, right? Cars and telephones and TVs and rocket ships and space shuttles and computers and internets and cell phones and Keep listing. goes on. So yes, there have been plenty of new inventions, but that's not what he's referring to. They had new things in his day too. That's not what he's referring to. I think what he's speaking about is, is the big picture of humanity. Where we've been, where we're going, uh, uh, what's going on now. He says, in a sense, no matter how many things change, everything stays the same. We have the same problems. The same frustrations, the same issues, the same difficulties come again and again. Really, human nature doesn't change. Under the sun, there has been and will always be wars and crimes and hate and death and destruction. There's a saying, uh, if you don't learn from history, then we're doomed to repeat it. You've heard that before. The preacher would say, would take away the if. He would state it as a fact. We don't learn from history, and we are doomed to repeat it. There's nothing new under the sun. So that's the first problem. What we see under the sun, permanent. Nothing changes. But really, there's an even greater problem, he points out. He says, everything under the sun is pointless. This is really the main point of of this book. Great. Everything's pointless. Main point of the book. The preacher's quest for meaning and everything he finds under the sun But what he finds instead of meaning is uh, vapor, vanity, pointlessness. We've already seen that because nothing changes under the sun, we all die. The preacher says that, that work and toil and labor are pointless. Verse, uh, chapter one, verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Here are a few more examples of uh, things he discovers are pointless, beginning in verse 17, chapter 1. Now, this is the preacher himself speaking. 
I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. Have you ever strove after the wind? It's like a little cat chasing that little laser light, if you've ever done that. Never going to get it. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He's saying that he sought meaning in life and wisdom and and knowledge, knowing stuff, even applying it. But it was striving after the wind, pointless. It only brought vexation or, or frustration and sorrow, sadness. So wisdom and knowledge are not the answer, he says, pointless. And so he tries something else. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we find him looking in, in, for meaning in pleasure and possessions. Pleasure and possessions. Ever tried that? Pleasure and possessions. I'm going to read this, uh, most of it, all of it, because it's so relevant to our culture. Think about all the pleasures that we're bombarded with, all the possessions that the world says, if only you had this thing, you would be happy. Now listen to what the preacher says. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said to laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female servants and slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of the kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, mistresses, people to have sex with. There's sex right there. The delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So he's got the wisdom still too. And whatever my eyes desired, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. We're going to read the reward in a second. But check this out. He has it all. He's tried it all. He denied himself nothing of the pleasures and possessions of his world. Tom Brady had nothing on this guy. But then verse 11, the bottom line conclusion. What was his reward? Then I considered all that my hands had done, And the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Wow. What did I get for all my toil? For trying to experience every pleasure, for seeking meaning in possessions. What did I get for a reward? Absolutely nada. Can I do absolutamente nada? Is Is that Spanish? Did I do that? My me or I, right? My me. I'm doing... T- oh, no, I did that wrong too. Okay. I'm trying different languages here. The point is, it was pointless. Pointless. And that's just the beginning of his journey. That's just the beginning. That's chapter 2. If we had time, we could go through chapter after chapter, all the things the preacher had experienced and experimented with, from wealth to religion to sex to power to prestige. 
But this conclusion, but his conclusion was always the same. Always the same. Vanity. And that was, that's his wisdom. He, he, he didn't live there. We see he comes out of it and says this is vanity. Ecclesiastes 9, 1, conclusion. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event, and he's talking about death here, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event, death, happens to all. For the living know what they, that they die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Simply put, what he's saying is, you can work hard, you can get wisdom and knowledge and pleasure and possessions and money and power, prestige, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not, if you're good or evil. It doesn't matter if you sacrifice or not, because eventually, no matter who you are, you're going to die. They're going to put you in the ground. They're going to come by, and if you have any cool stuff, they're going to take it for themselves. They're going to take the rest to the free sale or the yard sale, the thrift store. Nothing matters. So the preacher's answer, the preacher's answer, what he comes up with for the meaning of life is, for the meaning of life under the sun is, there's no meaning. Life under the sun is pointless. And that's his wisdom, by the way. So if life is pointless, what should I do? The preacher says in, in chapter 9, verse 7, so he's after he said, you know, everybody dies. What's the point? Go. Verse 7, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. You're going to die. So you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, right? Do whatever you want because God has already approved of what you do. This seems to me to be sarcasm from his perspective. Remember, this is life under the sun, life without reference to God. So in a sense, he's saying it doesn't matter what you do. God doesn't care. He approves of it all. You're going to die. The good guy's going to die. The evil guy's going to die. Because whether you are good or evil, you end up in the same place. It's the same conclusion. This, what he's concluded is the same thing that the people in our culture have a conclusion that they've reached, that, that God, if he does exist, and he probably doesn't, but if he does, then he's not personally involved in our lives. So whatever we do, he doesn't care. He approves, he approves of it all. There are people all over the world, there are people all over the world, maybe some here in this room, who are living this life under the sun. They're living as if there is no God. And if there is no God, then eat, drink, and marry, for tomorrow you die is a, is a perfectly fine motto. I go with, I'd go with it. If God doesn't care what we do, if there's no heaven or hell, 
If God is not personally involved in our lives, then by all means, eat, drink, and be merry because everything is permanent. Everything stays the same and, and it doesn't matter what you do and every, because everything is pointless. Life has no meaning. But what we need to see is that the preacher presents uh, an incomplete. He reaches this wise understanding that this is all pointless, but he doesn't say, well, what's the point then? Now, that's not to say that, we, uh, that what we have in Ecclesiastic is, is of no value, quite the opposite. It's of great value. It's, it's really, in many ways, a cautionary tale. I've went down all these roads, and there's nothing at the end. You don't have to. You don't have to uh, chase after all these things, all these under-the-sun things. I've chased them, and there's no meaning there. It's, it's really, in many ways, a tragic picture of one who sought everything under the sun, to live his life under the sun, one who sought to live life, at least for a time, without God. And what he finds uh, are really two uh, problems. Everything under the sun is permanent, nothing changes, and everything under the sun is pointless. All is vanity. The preacher teaches us that life under the sun is meaningless. Life without God has no meaning. So the question becomes, the question becomes, what about life with God? Is there a solution to an uh, unchanging, pointless life under the sun? And the answer is, uh, of course, uh, yes. There's more than life under the sun because there's a God above the sun. I think we had one of our, our, our songs, we had that for a subtitle, uh, Life Above the Sun, above the, Living Above the Sun. There's more than life under the sun because God is above. There is a God. And on that basis, the narrator, in his conclusion, offers a solution. And it's found at the very end of the book. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He says, the end of the matter, okay, we're coming to a conclusion here. You've seen everything this, this preacher's done. Learn from it. Here's the conclusion. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. Short, simple, to the point. Great. For this is the whole, this is the whole, this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, we've seen what the preacher's done, trying all this under the sun living. He's reached the conclusion, nothing satisfies, everything's vanity. We don't have to go down that road. Therefore, we must change our thinking. We need a a paradigm shift. This is what Tom Brady and we need to know. Uh, We need to stop seeking our joy and pleasure and satisfaction and meaning under the sun. Instead, we need to, in everything we do, this is our whole duty, he says. This is all we have to do, he says. We need to fear God and keep his commandments. We need to live our life not without God, but totally with and for God. God is to be feared, to be worshipped and honored and praised. Reverence for God. Our life is not to be guided by a quest to experience everything under the sun. Our life is to be guided by the Word of God. We are to keep His commandments because they are in reality above life under the sun. And this is the reality. Yes, everyone on this planet, good and evil, will die. But that's not the end. 
after death comes the judgment. And the reality is, everyone will be judged as to whether they lived under the sun without God, or they lived a life of reverence for God, fearing God, keeping his commandments. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us. Not that life is meaningless, but that life only has meaning with God. The meaning of life, the purpose of life, is to live for God, for His honor, for His glory, for His purposes. So the question becomes, and we'll close with this, how do we do that? How do we do that? So, so now, in our context, we're going to move. We could talk about how they were supposed to do it in the Old Testament context. No time for that. So we're going to jump to our context. Under the New Covenant, let's look at applying Ecclesiastes. Well, you might say, well, it's simple. You just told us what to do, right? Doesn't the narrator give us our application? Fear God and keep His commandments. Get it done. That's true. That's the application. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Does anybody see the problem? Anybody see the problem? Uh, Sean, we can't do it. We can't do it. The truth is, we don't fear God. We don't keep His commandments. The Apostle Paul makes this clear. Romans chapter 3, speaking to both Jews and Gentiles, all humanity, he says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And in verse 23, famous verse, he adds, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear that we are in a terrible situation because we don't fear God and we don't keep His commandments. And not only is the Bible clear about this, our lives every day demonstrate this. Every time we sin, uh, we're by definition not keeping God's commandments, right? That's the definition. And we're also showing that we, we don't really fear God either. We don't revere God. Because those who revere God obey God. If we truly feared, if we truly revered, thought God was this awesome as He really is, then we would be uh, shaking in our boots uh, to sin against Him. Afraid to to be out of relationship with Him. Afraid to to be away from Him. So that's our problem. The solution that the narrator has given us for this problem of of life under the sun, the solution to permanently uh, pointless, meaningless life, the solution is to fear God and keep His commandments, to live for God. But we every day... Proof that we can't follow that solution. We can't do it. We all too often follow the way of the preacher. We're selfish and sinful and prone to seek meaning, uh, to seek our satisfaction, especially our joy in the things under the sun. We return to those things, to seek meaning in life without God, to give ourselves over to life, to a life of pleasure, uh, pleasure filled pursuits. And in the end, we, like the preacher, find life under the sun has no meaning. I don't know if you've ever went on a a bender, if you said, uh, God, I'm just going to go do what I want to do. If you've done that, then you know uh, where it ends, and it ends the same place the preacher ended up. Uh, This is vanity. So that's our problem. No meaning. But we, we can't do the solution, that there's nothing new under the sun. So, so what's the answer? Do we need to try harder? 
Do we need to have programs to help us, help us be able to fear God? Do we need to learn more about fearing God? Might help. Do we need a, a lot more accountability partners so we sin less? That probably would help. But if you've had those things, you know you're still not fearing God and you're sinning. So what's the answer? What is the answer? Anybody? It's always the answer. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, God the Son, did what we could not do. He entered the physical world, but he didn't live life under the sun. He lived, he never lived without God. He was always living with the eternal perspective, the perspective of heaven and hell and judgment and sin and death. He understood these things. He lived a perfect life, a life of perfect reverence to God, a life of sinless obedience to God's commandments. Where we fail to fear God, Jesus perfectly feared and submitted to His heavenly Father. Where we fail to keep God's commandments, Jesus obeys 100% of the time. And then, and then, He offered Himself as a sacrifice for us. He took our place because we can't fear God. We can't keep His commandments. Through His death on the cross, He took on, He paid for our sin. He paid the price of our inability to fear God and keep His commandments. So you see, there may be nothing new under the sun, but in Revelation 21.5, God says that in Jesus Christ, behold, I am making all things new. In Christ Jesus, God did something radically new. Through Jesus Christ, God provides a, a way to escape this vanity of life under the sun. He provides a way to live with and for God. In Christ, God makes everything new. So we have a new kingdom. We have a new covenant with new people given new hearts. People who will receive new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. It's all new. The preacher says that life under the sun is vanity, meaningless, pointless. But Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus comes to bring meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction to your life. He takes us from under the sun and moves us above the sun. He gives us eternal life in his eternal kingdom. And that life doesn't start when you leave this physical world. When you get out from under the sun, that life starts when you open your heart to Jesus Christ. When you receive uh, what Jesus has to offer. Not by toil and labor and works, but by trusting in Him alone. By giving Him your life. When you trust in the sacrificial death that Jesus, uh, that Jesus died on the cross as payment for your sins, for your inability to fear God, your inability to keep His commandments. And it's when you do this, when you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus, it's then that life begins to have meaning. It's then you discover the ultimate meaning of life. The meaning of life is not found under the sun. It's found in the sun. S-O-N. The meaning, the purpose of our lives is to live for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not to seek satisfaction in the things of this world, but to seek satisfaction in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Anything else 
It's just life under the sun. And it's vanity. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, who are, who's, I'm very thirsty. And, uh, uh, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, forever loses his life for my sake, you find meaning in life by losing your life for his sake, will save it. Do, so, so I would invite you this morning to save your life, save your life, to experience true meaning and true purpose in life, to get satisfaction in life by losing it, by giving it to the only one who brings meaning and satisfaction, and that is Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you that uh, with Christ we can find meaning and purpose, that, that life is not vanity and pointlessness. Thank you for this lesson. Lord, help us to learn that we don't have to learn by touching the fire, but we, we, we can see somebody else touch it and get burned. The, 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 the preachers taught us, Lord, we don't have to go down these ro- roads of seeking after, uh, seeking after pleasure and, and even wisdom and power all of these things, we don't have to go there, Lord. We already know it's, it's vanity. And so, Lord, help us to seek after you with all our hearts. To seek first your kingdom, Lord. To seek Jesus and to, to live for him and find meaning, true meaning in that. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.